previously on the Who's Who podcast. Anyway, <laughs> next up is Balloon Buster, um, which is not a nasty kid that pops kids' balloons at, like, parks and stuff. He's a uh, U.S. Army Air Corps uh, veteran. He first appeared in All-American Men of War, number 112. He was a lieutenant in the U.S. Army Corps, drawn by my former instructor, Joe Kubert, uh, which is what he's most famous for, as being my former instructor. It's a, right. it's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful image. I mean, it's just, it's, it's Balloon Buster walking right towards the camera, and then in the background, you see a bunch of uh, dog fights, uh, as rendered by Joe Kubert, which is, you know, like top notch. So it's a, it's, it's not the most, like, exciting, you know, visual, cause he's not, he's not a superhero, he's just kind of like a cowboy looking dude, but it's a great drawing. Let me tell you, this, this one's an interesting collection of things that just came together for me, cause, on the surface, I go, okay, Joe Kuber, not always my favorite comic book artist in the 80s. Not that he's, not that he's bad. He, he has an excellent history. Don't get, just, uh, just wait. I can tell Raw. I can see the steam coming out of his ears. Just hold I tight. Said anything. All right. So first of all, it's drawn by Joe Kuber. Second of all, his name is Balloon Buster. <laughs> Third, he's got a ridiculous logo. So I go into it thinking, oh, this is going to be, you know, a disaster. And then you look at the art and it is stunning. It is so cool. I mean, the, the background, there's a, in the surprint, there's this, I can't believe I said surprint. Yay. There's this really close-up image of his face, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a profile of his face. You can see him bursting the war balloons. You see him, you know, having a shootout with who I assume is the Red Baron. And he looks like, honestly, he looks like Owen Wilson is who he looks it's like. Interesting. And oh, God, don't just, give Hollywood any ideas. Well, I like Owen Wilson. So oh. Anyway, he's walking. In the cool shot of him walking towards the camera, looks like he's, you know, there's a fiery explosions behind him. It's almost like a modern-day movie when you see the hero walking towards yeah. the camera and everything's burning behind him. <laughs> Slow walking away from an explosion. Yeah. And, and the text piece... Dude, I want to read these comics. <laughs> I like, I, he is, he, this is actually just perfect for a movie. He's the wild maverick, you know, pilot who disobeys orders and goes and gets the bad guy. I mean, this sounds like a cool series. The art is engaging and I want to read this. And, you know, have they done like showcases of his stuff? I don't at all? think they have. Uh, I love that it ends with Savage, which was his name, Stephen Henry Savage. What a great name, Stephen Henry Savage Jr. Savage is one of the most aggressive warriors of the war to end all wars and he, often with his enemy counterpart, Germany's famed Rittmeister Hans von Hammer, see Enemy Ace. So they're even tying him into another long-running DC character. That's cool. Which is great, you know? So, yeah, yeah, I I, I hear what you're saying. It makes me kind of want to go find these comics and read them. Absolutely. And again, this was part of what Husu was about. You know, like, Balloon Buster was not a character that was appearing anywhere, although he did make it a cameo in um, Crisis, although everybody well, did. Who didn't, Who right? didn't? Um, <laughs> I, don't think I, I don't think I'm in it, but other than that. Oh, the Golden Age Aquaman didn't. Huh, okay. Um, you, you talk about getting new jokes. Um, no, but, that was a, that was specifically a who's who thing, uh, sir. Okay. Yellow gloved Aquaman. Fair anyway, um, but you know, here here was DC's chance to you know brush off this whole character that had his own series for a while, and it was like, hey, he was a big part of our publishing history. Maybe not a big part, but he was a part of our publishing history a long time ago, and it's worthy of of highlighting him. You know, so I think that was part of the one of the things I loved about this series was that they took the time to do that. Was to in all, dust in all these my, characters hmm? in all my years. In all my years, I never thought I'd have a five minute conversation on Balloon Buster. <laughs> Yeah, really, button. yeah, seriously. I don't think they talked about him that much when they assigned Joe Kubert the drawing. Just, <laughs> Joe just draw this, and Joe took out his big hands and his big pencil and drew. 
Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of Who's That? This show is a spinoff to our Who's Who podcast, which in this case we focus on a single character that either Rob or I discovered via their Who's Who listings. And we look at their history in the DCU and where their appearances in the Who's Who. Were those appearances really enough, or was there more to explore? I'm the Irredeemable Shag, I'm one of your hosts, and with me is the saddle tramp, Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? In uh, keeping with the theme of this episode, Shag, I am recording uh, this podcast via a tin can. <laughs> Yeah, we're going old school. We're kicking it as if we're in 1917 in World War One. That's how they did podcasts back then. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you'll, you may notice the audio is off a little bit this episode because we've having some technical problems. But we decided we're going this route because if we don't, there won't be an episode this weekend, and neither one of us can take all that complaining from David Gutierrez. So we're going forward. We are persevering. <laughs> I hope you all appreciate what we do for you people out there. <laughs> this would be your cue, Rob, to say, I am the gun. I am the gun. I'm the gun. I am the gun. Because we are talking about Balloon Buster, folks. I mean, you heard the intro already, so you already knew what we're going to be talking about. But this entry, like, I think this may be the most perfect one for Who's That? I mean, the whole premise of the show was to talk about characters that sparked our interest from the Who's Who entry. And if you listen back to the, our coverage, we are clearly super excited about this entry and knew nothing about the character. So it's almost like this is perfect. I, uh, I'm excited for this. Yeah, I'd have to go back and listen to the other episodes. Uh, but I, I feel like Balloon Buster, because Balloon Buster is issue two yeah. of Who's Who. I feel like this was the first listing that you really went nuts for. And you were like, who is this guy? Like, that, was, <laughs> that was really the beginning of that whole idea that we were discovering characters through Who's Who. So I, I feel like that was this was the beginning of that. I think so. So I'm excited. I've been, I've been petitioning for this one since you first came up with the concept for this spinoff show. I was like, I want to do Balloon Buster. And it took to the freaking sixth episode, so I'm glad we're here. And we had to get to the crime doctor. Come on. Apparently, we had to get to Dr. Occult. But anyway. <laughs> All right, before we get you too much... Stupid, you stupid voters over on Facebook. <laughs> Before we get too much further, we should take a moment to thank our sponsors, folks. Uh, this episode of Who's That is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Since I now have a case of the giggles, I'm going to let you go first, Rob. What do you got? Okay. Since, unfortunately, there is uh, no Balloon Buster Tales available in reprint form uh, on InStockTrades.com, I went the other way and uh, selected something featuring the art of one of my favorite artists who we're going to be talking about in this episode, Frank Thorne. Everyone knows him. I love Frank Thorne. Yeah, uh, he. I'm going to be waxing his plane big time in this episode. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I picked the Frank Thorne Red Sonia Art Edition Volume 2. If any of you have ever seen these art editions, you know they are these gorgeous, oversized hardcover books in black and white, and they are done at the size that the original art pages were done. Everyone knows comic book art is done one and a half times up, or actually two times up, of the actual comic book. So this is, you're seeing the pages, what they look like by the artist. And this is Frank Thorne's Red Sonia work in the 70s. I mean, I, again, I've talked about this. I don't know how Marvel got this stuff published. The Thomas <laughs> authority. Uh, I mean, if you look at Frank, if you look at Frank Thorne's Red Sonia, if you are ever confused about your sexuality, look at Frank Thorne's Red Sonia, <laughs> and this will answer the question. I mean, there's just no, there's no, no other way to, no other way around it. This is a, by some Dynamite Entertainment. The writer is Roy Thomas. The art is, of course, by Frank Thorne. One 
128 pages, full color, normal price, $150. Damn. Not cheap. Yeah, these books are not cheap. But in stock trades price is $105. You save 30% off, which means you would get free shipping just from this book alone. I mean, again, if you've ever seen these things in like a Barnes & Noble or any sort of bookstores, you know they are gorgeous editions. And the idea of seeing Frank Thorne's work at this size is just unbelievable. So Frank Thorne, Red Sonia, Art Edition, Volume 2. I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds really uh, yeah. y- yummy. Uh, I picked uh, something – well, we, as you said, we couldn't get Balloon Buster. But there is a character in the book I picked, Enemy A specifically, uh, in DC Goes to War hardcover. This is a collection of, oh my gosh, 352 pages of old war comics. We've got Sergeant Rock, Enemy Ace, The Boy Commandos, Black Hawks, and many, many more. Uh, I'm not going to read out all the comics you collect because it's a freaking metric ton here. But it's full color, hardcover. The cover's by Dan Brereton. I mean, with all those characters inside, you know there's going to be a lot of Kubert in there. There's probably some, uh, well, I don't even want to speculate because I could be wrong. But anyway, there's a, a lot of amazing artists in there, folks. And it normally retails for $39.99. You can get it for 42% off right now, so it's only $23.19. And I got to tell you, between doing like Who's That and doing the Digest stuff, I have found that the old DC War Comics are amazing. They are something that we've lost. We've truly lost a real gem of comic book publishing because some of these War Comics are just amazing. They're so compelling. The stories are great, and I guarantee you're going to love this collection. So, uh, so anyway, so go out and check it out. Again, DC Goes to War hardcover, uh, and you can get her again for $23.19. It's a pittance, folks. Uh, it'd be, it, you'd absolutely love this. So for these and all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, we also need to thank you folks at home for your support because uh, running the Who's Who podcast uh, with uh, all these – with the hosting fees and everything else and, and the rest of the network, it takes a lot of money. And with your Patreon support, we've been able to stay on the air. Without your help, we wouldn't be here. Now, Rob wouldn't be talking out of tin can. If, <laughs> sorry. I, if you want to check out our Patreon, it's at uh, patreon.com slash fwpodcast. We would appreciate you taking a look at it and just consider supporting the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And at certain tiers, you get mentioned on your favorite Fire and Water shows, just like these folks. Our thanks to Christopher Lydon, David A. Gutierrez, Gore Tolton, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein, Michael Atchison, Michael O'Brien, Nathan Archer, Noah Tarnow, Chuck Coletta, Daniel Budnick, Corey Drew, Paul Kenzel, Steve Givens, Tom Perrain, and Tom Panneries. So again, folks, visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. All the information is there. I'm not doing it justice. There are a lot of different tiers and a lot of different ways you can help support if you're, uh, if you're willing, and we appreciate it. All right, so let's get to what we're here for. Who is Balloon Buster? So I'll start us off, Rob. His real name is Lieutenant Steve Savage, and he grew up in Wyoming, a place called Mustang River, and his father is Steve Savage Sr., and and uh, they were labeled as white trash. I mean, those their words in the magazine, not mine. They called him white trash. And uh, his dad apparently was not uh, well regarded in town. And Steve had a rough time of it himself and ended up getting run out of town. He ends up in the army during World War One. He goes on. He, he becomes a pilot. It's interesting because he's not really painted as a very skillful pilot. Like he can he can fly the plane, but he's not like you know in all these comics you read about like the, the like the aerial ballet and you know all the amazing tr- twists. And and turns and stuff. Mm-mm, nope, not Balloon Buster. He pretty much, they describe him as like a raging bull. He just goes straight on towards the enemy and doesn't swerve, plays chicken, and just shoots him and kills him. It's pretty amazing. And uh, during his run, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, he becomes well-renowned for blowing up uh, ob- observation balloons. And that's how he becomes known as a Balloon Buster. And one of the trademarks of him is he's always getting in trouble. 
He uh, he's always disobeying orders. He's always being threatened to court martialed. And uh, one of the things that he, another hallmark of these stories is, unfortunately, his actions often end up in some of his allies or friends or love interests getting killed. So uh, yeah, that's that's kind of, that's a sure thing. And and his catchphrase. What's his catchphrase from? I'm the gun. I'm the gun. So where does that come from? He. <laughs> <laughs> Easy for you to say. Yeah, no, he basically uh, regards himself as sort of one with the plane almost, kind of where it's, he becomes the instrument of death that he is doling out to his enemies. And that came from his father. His father said, you know, forget your legs, forget your arms, forget your breathing. You know, you become the weapon yourself. And that's where the, I am the gun. I'm And boy, if you ever read one of these comics, you're never going to forget that catchphrase because he says it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I I don't know about you. Did you know what, like about balloon the whole balloon busting the observation balloons? Because I didn't know about this before then. Did you, were you aware of this stuff? No, not at all. Never heard of any of this stuff. And I'm embarrassed to admit that. I mean, for, for you folks who were your war aficionados, you're probably thinking we're we're just morons. But it's it's interesting how just a hundred years later, this kind of stuff is forgotten. So what what this the gist of it? And this is real facts, not combo facts. But in, during World War One, people the Germans would fly, and I, I guess the Allies did too would fly these giant balloons up in the air and so they could uh, and from far away with binoculars and wireless radios they could look down into the trenches and they could call down to their people on the ground and say hey you know the allies just got new recruits uh aim your mortars at this location and shoot them and that's how they ended up you know getting a lot of the the people in the trenches killed was from these observation balloons these observation balloons would be watching and spying all the time and they were heavily fortified they were heavily protected there were planes flying around it there were guns on the ground protecting it because these observation balloons could really turn the, t- the tide of a battle. And so uh, these these people, like Steve uh, Savage, became known as balloon busters. Their job was to go shoot these observation balloons down. And I, I read up on this. There were 77 flying aces in World War One, where each were credited with destroying five or more balloons. And once you destroyed uh, five or more balloons, you were considered a balloon ace. And according to at least Wikipedia, the highest number of balloons anyone shot down was 35. Uh, he was a Belgian. The highest number any American shot down was 14 balloons. Well, I'm pretty sure that uh, Balloon Buster, Steve Savage, shot down a hell of a lot more than 35 or 14 <laughs> of the stories he appeared in. He's, he's, he's shooting these things down all the time. <laughs> oh, I mean, Balloon Buster could shoot down, you know, like a, a ship from Apocalypse or something. He's so good at what he does. Because <laughs> he is the gun. He's the gun. Yeah, he's the gun. <laughs> By the way, I have to say about the name Balloon Buster, I mean, outside of the context, which, of course, at the time, probably readers knew what that was, once you get to the point where people don't know what balloon busting means, it's unfortunate that his name is just not terribly powerful, especially when his real name is Steve Savage. Like, that's a great war guy name. But, uh, like we talked about in the in the opening, in the original Who's Who, like, balloon buster, it just sounds kind of goofy. But, I mean, again, at the time, when this character debuted, I'm, readers, I'm sure, still knew what that meant. So, alright, I'll, I'll, I'll admit another confession I wasn't going to say on the air, but I will. I genuinely went into this expecting to read him flying around in a hot air balloon, Fighting Door War One. I did not even put together the busting part of this. <laughs> and so I generally thought he flew a balloon. He kills oh. the enemy very slow. I did I didn't know. I just didn't know. Oh my gosh. So if if you get interested in Balloon Buster, and we're again we're gonna talk a lot more about him, and, and you really should be, because these comics were fantastic, fantastic. There is a fantastic blog called I'm the Gun, which was put together by Buddy RRs, uh, Mark Sweeney Jr. And you know, he's he ran the thing for years. I don't think he's currently updating anymore. But I never really understood. I mean, he told us because we would message him here and there because we'd talk about different things. 
And he would mention how, you know, it was the catchphrase of Balloon Buster. And we're like, okay, whatever, Mark. But, man, I mean, it's a great blog. It really is. In fact, I, I stole some stuff later. I'm going to give him credit for it. But uh, it's, it's – I mean, he – Bless him. I mean, we we live in glass houses, Mister Aquaman Shrine and Firestorm fan. We cannot be mocking Mark and the balloon the balloon buster blog. I'm sorry. Oh, totally. Yeah. Who? Yeah. Who were we to make fun of somebody who likes balloon buster? Right. So I was actually having some trouble doing some research for this episode, and so I was googling everything I could, finding out different appearances and stuff like that. And some of these comics have just fallen down rabbit holes and aren't reprinted anywhere, or aren't available digitally, whatever. And I gave up on reading these Frank Thorne issues that Rob's going to wax the car of right here, or wax the plane. He was super excited about it. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm just not going to get to read these things. And I Googled and I stumbled across this really obscure website where they talked about the Frank Thorne issues and said that these were reprinted in a DC showcase all about Enemy Ace, which was sitting on my shelf. So I was actually able to read the Frank Thorne issues because they're on my shelf in the Enemy Ace blog. And again, I found this referenced on some obscure website. I've never heard of it. It's called Ciscoid Blog of Geekery. I don't even know what the hell that is. Um, apparently he runs a blog and does uh, posts all about who's who and he was inspired by some stupid podcast. I don't know. Mm, uh, <laughs> sounds uh, sounds kind of cool. <laughs> so uh, one of the things I got thinking about here with Balloon Buster is uh, where did he fall in the scheme of compared to Enemy Ace? Because, you know, here, Balloon Buster's an ally, right? And Enemy Ace is the other famous World War One comic guy. So I was like, okay, are they contemporaries? Were they far apart? We know they meet. In fact, we're going to talk about that. So I looked it up. Sure enough, they actually, Enemy Ace only premiered 10 months before Balloon Buster. Now, he had a much longer life than Balloon Buster, but uh, it, it, they were created fairly contemporarily. Yeah, Enemy Ace, I would say, is probably second only to Sergeant Rock in terms of the war characters. Balloon Buster is much further behind that in terms of his you know, long, long-lasting fame. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, when we get to it, the number of appearances, you can count on two hands. So, yeah. so uh, you guys heard in the opening where our interest sparked uh, with Balloon Buster. It was that Who's Who entry. Uh, it's from Who's Who in the DC Universe number two, cover date April 1985. Cover, uh, the arts by Joe Kubert's absolutely beautiful. And as I said in the intro, and I still stand by it, it he could be played by Owen Wilson, like in like the 1990s Owen Wilson, could be played by Owen Wilson in a movie. He absolutely could. I have another idea who could play Balloon Buster, but we'll get to that at, at the proper time. Okay. Well, I posted on Rob's Facebook uh, just the other day about, I, sh- I even shared a picture of Owen Wilson in a cowboy outfit from Night of the Museum. I'm telling you, he looks like Balloon Buster. <laughs> Okay, uh, fair enough. All right. Well, Balloon Buster's first appearance was in All American Men of War, number 112, and that was December 1965. Now, we've already told you a little about his history, so we don't need to go – we're not going to cover his first appearance. Uh, just know, again, the hallmarks are uh, he, his trademark, I am the gun. He disobeys orders. He gets allies killed, and he shoots down balloons. I mean, that's kind of the general gist of what you get in a Balloon Buster comic. Um, now, I'm going to do a little exciting on-the-air counting here, folks. I may have to take off my shoes. What's that? Uh, three, four, five, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. I think it's only fifteen appearances altogether. If I did that real quick math, uh, I think he only had fifteen appearances prior to uh, the Who's Who entry, and that was it. He was, uh, as we mentioned, he's an all-American man of war, and he was in there for f- five issues, or no, four issues, sorry, uh, four issues there. Then he showed up in this one issue of Our Fighting Forces, which was done six years later, so 1971. It was just a, one, a one-shot story uh, with art by Rick Estrada. Then he goes into uh, the next year, in 1972, he goes into Star Spangled War Stories, and they actually reprint his first four appearances in there. They reprinted all four of those first appearances, uh, and then he has a cameo in one panel, uh, 
Ennett issue. Then we get to the Frank Thorne issues, which we're going to talk about. Mm. And that's 1974 by that point. Then he shows up at Unknown. Then they jump forward eight years. He doesn't appear for eight years and comes back at Unknown Soldier for six issues. Uh, three by Dan Spiegel and three by John Severin. And then that's it. He's gone. Which I, I think those are kind of the reason he ended up in Who's Who. Because those were in 1982. And, you know, who's who's 85. So it's, he'd only been gone for really, you know, three years at that point. So I think that's probably why he merited a who's who entry. I don't know. I, right. I, I, I'm betting that he was maybe a personal favorite of some of the D.C. staff because, I mean, look at the artists that drew this guy. He was, as you just said, he only had 15 appearances, but it's a, uh, no pun intended, who's who of great comic book artists that uh, delineated his stories. Come on, rattle off the name of them. This is impressive. You've got Russ Heath, Joe Kubert, Rick Estrada, Frank Thorne, Dan Spiegel, and John Severin. I mean, good Lord, what? And those are all guys that really didn't do superhero stuff, and yet they are some of the best combo guys ever to do it, and yet they all drew Balloon Buster. It's an embarrassment of riches. I mean, it really is. It really is. is. Ah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, back when we did Who's Who number two, from that Balloon Buster clip in the beginning, I didn't know who most of these guys were other than Joe Kubert. And it, it's, I've learned so much as we've gone through all these years of doing all this to, to appreciate all of these artists now. So uh, I, I feel like uh, I've learned a lot thanks to the show. I won't say thanks to you, but thanks to the show. <laughs> thanks to me. So we're going to pick, we each picked out a couple of stories we wanted to cover uh, to go into a little more detail and just tell you guys why you should be into B- Balloon Buster. So Rob, why don't you cover Star Spangled War Stories, issues 181 to 183 from 1974. Okay. Uh, when I saw, as uh, Shag mentioned, when I saw that these comics existed, I did not know that there were any Frank Thorne drawn stories of Balloon Buster. I went out to eBay and bought these comics. Uh, <laughs> I went out. I didn't buy the. Re- they are reprinted in an enemy A showcase, but I didn't buy that. I bought the original smelly old newsprint comic. Uh, <laughs> so they arrived here, and they uh, they are the backup strips because uh, the unknown soldier was the main feature of Star Spangled War Stories at the time. But in the back, we've got these eight page strips drawn by uh, excuse me, written by Robert Kaniger and drawn by Frank Thorne. The editor is Archie Golden, where it's the balloon buster taking on enemy A's, and it's on the cover. It's on the first one it says enemy ace flies again and it says it on the second cover and on the third cover and the third cover actually doesn't mention either one of them so it doesn't even bother to mention balloon buster on the covers uh so you wouldn't even know until you bought the book and i'm not going to do strict recaps because the story is so basic uh it's mostly aerial dogfight we know that like alex toth loved this kind of stuff so anytime you know he could draw a story involving biplanes he would so i'm betting frank thorne probably asked for this kind of assignment because look because so much of the story is just planes finding each other finding each other so finally there's this big fight over the skies enemy ace uh, shoots one guy down of course then then he uh, over the uh, skies he runs into balloon buster and they get into this really uh pitched fight and enemy ace recognizes immediately that you know oh, this guy that i'm fighting i can't see this guy but this guy is a real uh, a real charging bull as it were you know like he really this guy is probably to you know my equal in terms of a, a, as a pilot but he finally forces balloon buster down onto German grunts and he takes Balloon Buster prisoner. He basically says, you're my prisoner. I beat you in battle and Balloon Buster goes along with it. And that's the end of the first story. And you're like, okay, all right, what's going to happen here? And then in the second the second chapter, Enemy Ace has a sort of respect for Balloon Buster because he's like, obviously, again, this guy's like a pilot equal to me. And he actually sits and allows Balloon Buster, Steve Savage, to have dinner with all the German troops 
and they're sitting there and sharing martinis and Balloon Buster grabs his drink and p- repays Enemies' kindness by hitting him in the face with a glass and shooting his way out of the German encampment, which is fantastic, which is why. Uh, Shag, have you ever seen Inglorious Bastards? Yes, I have. Okay. There's the scene in that movie where uh, Brad Pitt playing uh, Aldo, Captain Aldo Rain, uh, he has that standoff with the Nazi down in the basement in that bar. And they, they, they kind of go back and forth about, okay, I'm going to put down my gun. You're going to put down your gun and we're all going to make out of this alive. And then Brad Pitt goes down to the vision and shoots the Nazi. Right. Cause he's a Nazi. Screw him. I don't have to make it. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to make a deal with you. You're a Nazi. And that's that kind of like what a balloon buster does. He's like, yeah, I know you're treating me kind of like a regular guy, but I'm going to, I'm going to kill a bunch of you guys if I can. So he escapes. Uh, one of the other German pilots tries to stop him down. Balloon buster shoots him with a gun, just like a six shooter. He doesn't even, he doesn't even before he even gets into the plane he leaps back onto his plane enemy ace gives chase balloon buster manages to get away he lands in france and he meets this very calmly mademoiselle and there's a great part in that where she the the uh, what's her name here it says celeste she says oh dear you were reported missing presumed dead and balloon buster says i'm gonna i'm gonna straighten all that out that i'm still alive but that's gonna wait until the morning right <laughs> balloon buster's gonna do his business so there's yeah. that so that's the end of, that's the end of the, the second chapter chapter and it basically ends with balloon buster saying i'm going to get revenge on the enemy ace and then we have the third chapter they get into yet another battle and again it's mostly aerial stuff um balloon buster knocks down a zeppelin so that's kind of like a balloon so you know that sort of counts they get into this again this this really big battle enemy ace downs balloon buster and at the end of the story balloon buster is left in as like a mummy he's totally bandaged up he's been burned and he's lucky to be alive and all he can think about is i can't wait till i get better i'll going to take that German down. It's like, that's Balloon Buster, man. I just, I just, this guy is very single-minded. And I, I man, I love these stories. I mean, again, I am just a, a such an aficionado of Frank Thorne. I think he's one of my all-time favorite comic book artists. It was such a delight to see him here drawing these characters. And man, this, I just, these were a blast. They were so fun. They're just war action. And it's like, it's a, so it's like eight pages times three, seven pages times three. So you've got a 21-page story, but there's like an hour's worth of action. <laughs> <laughs> 21 pages. I mean, they're just, they are so fun. So again, I'm so happy I bought these comics because they are a delight. Oh, they're absolutely a joy. Again, I, I'm reading them in the 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 showcase right here. So I'm reading in black and white and uh, it gives me a chance to really study the art too a little. Uh, that's one of the benefits of the black and white, but I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. One of the things that now I'm going to talk about the writing for a second though. One of the things I love is the first part is from the point, I don't know if you noticed this or not. First part is from the point of view of the enemy ace. And yeah, it's second, totally an enemy ace story, yeah. Well, the second chapter though is from the point of view of Balloon Buster. So it's his story. So, and then the third one's back to enemy ace. But it's, it's interesting that they took the time to tell the story from each of their point of view. And, and I love that. And I like you said, the, the dog fighting. I mean, you, you've got, I don't need to say any more about it other than it's amazing. I do like also how they really try and demonstrate the two different personalities. You know, Enemy Ace, if you've ever read any of his stories, which are also phenomenal, by the way, he's a complete gentleman. I mean, he, yes, he's German. Yes, he's the enemy, but he's full of honor and respect and following protocol and you, you do the right thing in social situations and stuff like that. Whereas Balloon Buster, I think you called him what a raging bull or whatever. I mean, that's, that's him. He's, you know, this roughneck cowboy is what he is. And he's just going to, barge his way through the situation and so they're completely different personalities and it plays off each other really really well 
I love the ending too, where he's all wrapped up. I mean, there's two things about that. First of all, did you ever see the the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie? Yes. It ends with uh, sorry spoilers with Bullseye in like full body cast, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's exactly what this looks like. I mean, it's like exactly that moment at the end where Bullseye is you know in the full body cast. Or it made me think like, oh wait, you know this appeared an unknown soldier. He kind of looks like the unknown soldier all wrapped up like that. Yeah, he does. That's right. Yeah. But it's there's not enough superlatives to say about how beautiful the art is. It's it, there's not enough to say about how exciting it is. I mean, this would make a hell of a movie. I mean, yeah, like you said, it's only 21 pages, but there's enough story in here for a full movie because you've got three acts, you've got enough aerial battles to keep it exciting, you've got exploding blimps or, or zeppelins. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing's a complete win. Yeah, I real these were so I paid like kind of a I don't know a little bit of a hefty price for these comics. But oh, jeez, okay. It, yeah, I mean it wasn't terrible, but they were a little more expensive than you would expect. But uh, boy, they were they were really fun, and I enjoyed the Unknown Soldier stories too. But yeah, I uh, I whoever idea it was Archie Goodwin to get Frank Thorne in to do these, I'm just genius because I mean they are really fun, and you can see Kaniger just loved this kind of stuff. You know, I mean he was he I mean do we even have to get into the history of Robert Kaniger? I mean, does anyone in that know who he is we could talk about him briefly yeah well let's, uh, let's I mean, talk about yeah. the creators because Kaniger right. was the original writer so go ahead right yeah and he had a long career he started writing comics in 1941 his last credit is in 2001 so when I had 60 Ooh. year career he died in 2002 he did almost all of his work for DC only two stories for Marvel across 60 years of writing only two ever stories for Marvel he had very long runs in the 40s on Wonder Woman Flash Green Lantern and then in the 60s he went back to Wonder Woman and then then I, I of Wonder Woman almost exclusively war titles. Uh, but I mean, his his list of co-creations, creations or co-creations, is as long as your arm. Black Canary, Sergeant Rock, The Suicide Squad, The Metal Men, The War the Time Forgot, oh. Enemy, yeah, I know, all your favorites. Enemy Ace, The Losers, The Haunted Tank, The Unknown Soldier, Rosenthorn, and Ragman. I mean, that is just, it's a huge list. Um, one fun, well, two fun details I, I found on his uh, wiki page is one, it says, among fellow comic creators, Kaniger was well known for his unstable personality and violent and temper oh my god so, yeah it's just kind, kind of like ryan it's uh, it's kind of amazing and then i uh, i also saw that i and this i did not know this he taught for one year at the joe kubert school oh my gosh i had no idea i mean that certainly was long long before i got there but uh, that sounds uh, awesome and also terrifying <laughs> It's interesting. Like I, I've heard a lot of not positive things about his superhero work, like some of his Wonder Woman stuff and everything like that. But the non-superhero titles you just named, all like you said, those are all my favorites, man. You mentioned yeah. <laughs> Metal Men, Enemy Ace, uh, uh, Balloon Buster, uh, uh, The War That Time Forgot. I mean, I love all of those things so much. Think about how many of those concepts are in use today. Are like oh you know, in, it's amazing. It's yeah. Amazing. Well, why don't you talk a little about the other creator? Now, Russ, we're not covering a Russ Heath story here technically, but why don't you talk a little about Russ Heath? Yeah. Russ Heath is the guy that first drew uh, Balloon Buster in his first appearance. And so I don't know. I mean, he gets a co-creator credit. I, I never know about how these things work, about whether, you know, uh, Kaniger created the character and then just gave Russ Heath or Russ Heath designed it. I don't know. But anyway, Russ Heath, again, had a very long career from comics from 1948 to 2008. He died in 2018, just a couple of years ago. Uh, he did a lot of Western work for Marvel, Kid Cold Outlaw, and then a lot of war and Western stuff for DC and other companies. He also worked on The War of the Time Forgot. 
Not a oh, long, so oh, yeah, long run on Sergeant Rock. He did the first 10 issues of The Sea Devils, which is a very handsome book. He also drew on Hunted Tank. He did a couple issues of uh, Warren's Blazing Combat, which is an amazing magazine. He has a story in Thrilling Adventure Stories number two for Atlas, the briefly running Atlas company. And if anybody's ever seen that issue, it's a magazine, Thrilling Adventure Stories number two. That is one of the greatest comic books ever printed because it's got a Neil Adams cover, Frank Thorne art, Russ Heath art, Walt Simonson art. Oh I mean, it is, yeah, it is an amazing, they managed to get all these great people all in one issue. It's, if you can ever find it on eBay, well, you can't, it's not, it's not expensive. It's an amazing magazine. And it was the last issue of Thrilling Adventure Stories. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, one other detail about the Russ Heath is not so good is that various Russ Heath drawings of fighter jets from DC Comics is all American men of war were the uncredited and uncompensated basis for pop artist Roy Lichtenstein's oil paintings. Oh, wow. Uh, Wham, blam, okay, hotshot, okay, and baratata were all based on Russ Heath art, and Russ Heath never saw a dime from that, while Roy Lichtenstein became uh, a world-renowned millionaire artist. So uh, that sucks, everybody. Uh, I can't imagine how Russ Heath must have felt about that. I guess swiping was a thing even in pop art. Oh, jeez. I I mean, it was all considered like, oh, you know, Roy Lichtenstein was recontextualizing it, and I'm I'm even willing to, to grant that, that he was recontextualizing it, but he's still got to pay the guy whose artwork you're right. using. Right, it should have been some sort of... Contextualized, come yeah, on. Yeah. That's not fair at all. Ugh. Oh, man. So you mentioned Russ Heath, and, you know, Kaniger wrote it, but Heath designed it artistically. So we should probably – we didn't even describe what he looks like, really. So the, the, the typical balloon buster look is – you know, he, first of all, keep in mind, he's a World War I pilot, so he's American pilot. So he's supposed to be wearing a U.S. Army, at that point, uh, uniform, but he wasn't. He wears basically cowboy fatigues. He's wearing, you know, like jeans, and he's got like – he's actually carrying uh, like an old cowboy belt uh, with two guns on the side, and he's got a cowboy hat on. He's flying a plane with a cowboy hat on. I, how that doesn't fly off, I don't know. <laughs> so, and of course, he's got the goggles for flights and all this stuff. But I mean, he looks like a cowboy flying a plane. So it, he doesn't even necessarily fit with the World War One look. So I got to think Russ Heath had played a part in that, probably. I'm going to have to assume so. It's, it is a very distinctive book. Yeah. So I'm going to cover an issue, too. Uh, I'm going to cover All-American Men of War on number 114 from April 1966. So we're actually going back in time from the story Rob covered. I'm going, this is his third appearance. And, uh, I and the cover is by Joe Kubert, and it's oh, got so I, good. It is. It's got a giant. You know, there's so many words up here. <laughs> Introducing the World War One ace who broke all the rules, Lieutenant Steve Savage, the Balloon Buster in All American Men of War. Yeah, all of that is across the top. And uh, go go checks. And go go checks. Right, right. And then it says, every time you stare at a plane, you will be haunted by the ace who died twice from the flaming skies of World War One. So what you've got is uh, it's an interesting foreground shot. Uh, in you're looking at. Uh, and not even a full body, just you're looking at this man who's slumped over, and is and he's holding the stick in a cockpit of a plane, and his hands have been tied with like a yellow scarf around the stick, so he doesn't drop the stick. And then in the background is your main image, and so it's interesting. The foreground is almost like a border, but the the, the middle, the main image is actually a background, and it's Steve Savage holding, cl- desperately clinging to the wing of the plane. This will all make more sense <coughs> later, I promise. And he's yelling, "That dead pilot's still flying his ship, so I can finish his fight." So uh, as we get into it, that that may make a little more sense. So anyway, this will, of course, be on our blog. Uh, not blog. It'll be on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. And uh, I, I will post this cover out there so you can see what I'm talking about. But let me get into the issue. Um, I have, uh, as I said, I want to give credit to Mark Sweeney Jr., who does the I'm the Gun blog. I have taken basically an abbreviated 
recap from his website. So full credit to Mark. Uh, I've abbreviated it for these purposes. So uh, it is written by Robert Canader. Art and on is inside, also by Joe Kubert. In the story, there's a German ace called The Undertaker, and he drops a challenge from above onto the Allies' airfield. It is a tiny casket containing a message daring any fool to attack the observation balloons. Well, that night, Steve Savage has nightmares about his youth and the humiliation brought on by the shabby treatment his father and he suffered at the hands of the local townsfolk. Sometimes, even in combat, Savage imagines he can hear his old tormentor's laughter. The next day, Savage tears through some observation balloons, uh, which happen to be attached to a moving train, which is a pretty exciting battle, by the way. And uh, on his way back to the airfield, these German fighters actually tail him and follow him back to their airstrip. And and they attack. So Savage is on the ground. He's wounded in the attack, um, but he ends up shooting down both planes. Savage's commanding officer, uh, Major Michaels, threatens to court-martial him for carelessly endangering the base. But once again, Savage's bacon is saved by General Talbot um, because he's very impressed with the balloon buster. That evening, uh, Savage steals away from the field and comes across a young French girl named Denise who is frozen with panic due to the German bombing that's going on around her. So after witnessing the Undertaker shoot down a French plane, Savage and Denise uh, sneak away. They find them some safety in a nearby house. And they can still hear all the shelling, so to drown out the noise, they end up dancing to music that they play on a gramophone, finding some comfort in each other's arms. Uh, suddenly, a French pilot bursts into the house. Now, this pilot is named Raoul, who is one of Denise's two brothers. He and his brother, Henry, had just been shot down by the Undertaker. Raoul survived. Henry did not. Raoul vows vengeance on the German pilot, but he has no plane. So Savage sneaks Raoul onto the American airfield to steal an American airplane so he can have a showdown with the Undertaker. Now, before Raoul can take off in the American uh, SPAD, which is, by the way, with the plane that uh, Bloombuster always flies, is SPAD, S-P-A-D, uh, he and Bloombuster are shot at by the U.S. troops because they're stealing a plane. So in their haste to escape this caper, Savage is forced to hang on to the wing of the plane while Raoul flies the plane. So up in the air, with Savage desperately clinging to the wing, Raoul and the Undertaker face off, plane against plane. Unfortunately, Raoul takes some of the fire from the Undertaker, and as his life slips away, Raoul manages to tie his own hands to the stick of the plane, leaving Savage and his six-gun, still clinging onto the wing, to fend for himself against the German pilot. The Balloon Buster is amazingly able to shoot down the Undertaker just using his pistol, and then regains control of the plane, eventually returning Raoul's body, uh, dead body, sadly, to his sister. So that is uh, the eight, what is it? Uh, the, the ace who died twice. Now I'm going to, I got lots to say, but what'd you think of this one, buddy? It's so freaking good. Yes. <laughs> it just is. I mean, I, for, I can love, I already talked about it ad nauseum. I'm a big fan of Joe Cuber. I always was. I think his artwork on this story is just magnificent. I mean, the cover is great. The layout is great. The story by Kaniger is fantastic. I love the, yeah, I love the, you know, German throwing the letter, you know, the under, Undertaker, well, Undertaker, such a wrestler name. I love that. Right. It's great. <laughs> um, the, the the flashback that uh, that Steve Savage has when he's in the bed and he's seeing all the battles going on, the fight that he gets into. He looks a little like uh, Batlash. Uh, uh, yeah, when he's yeah. Punching, when he's punching those guys out at one point. Then you've got the scene in France where the bombs are falling and you've got that, you know, beautiful mademoiselle running with her hands on her head like, whoa, you know, you know. And, just, <laughs> and he picks her up and then, she, and then even, and then the, the panel where they're hugging, I love that, um, that, uh, 
Kubert like draws like deep into the shadows where she we see her her hand on his back and then she pulls it up and she sees that he's bleeding. I mean, I, I, I just I, I gotta interrupt you there. This page where they're dancing, the 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 this, it's the art and the story that the bombs are crashing around them and the bullets are flying and it's so loud. They play music to drown it out and they just dance and hold each other is like such an incredibly beautiful human moment. That's why I picked the story was this page. Yeah, it's it's just it's just great. And then that final <laughs> next to the last page of of uh, Steve Savage literally on the wing of his own plane, just holding on with one hand, yelling, "I'm the gun! I'm the gun!" <laughs> it's like, oh my lord. And I again, I love Hubert was great at putting in you know the battle lines, like how much is aging you because Steve Savage is supposed to be in his twenties presumably in these stories, but he looks much older because of course he's, you know, he's having, he's having a hard life. I mean, he's yeah. facing death every moment of every day. So he just has that wonderfully drawn withered thousand yard stare kind of thing. I loved it. I just loved it. I've loved, I, I read all of the, except for one, the Rick Estrada, I didn't get a chance to, to dig up, but uh, I read the rest of these stories and they are all great. I mean, they really are. I mean, this is like, there should be a balloon buster trade of just all these stories. This yeah. Is, these are so good. I, I did the same. I read every single balloon. But I even read the Estrada one. I read every balloon buster story. Uh, I fell in love. And again, it's only like 15 stories plus one. We'll talk about another one in a minute. But uh, they're so good. Now, there are certain things that get a little repetitive, um, like Major Michaels and General Talbot. Every episode or every issue, it seems like, uh, he gets in trouble with Major Michaels, who's threatening to court-martial him for breaking the rules. <laughs> and then General Talbot always pulls up at just the right moment, and he goes, no, the, the only way we're going to win this war is with people like Steve Savage, so you you can court martial him, but I'm going to give him a medal. Which way do you want to go, Major? And it, it's like every so I imagine if they'd gone past you know 15 appearances, or whatever that would have got a little old. They would have had to move past that. But uh, it's you know it's it's a cute trope for you know for the short amount of stories you get. And like I gotta wonder too. And th- th- these are not criticisms, guys. I absolutely these are now some of my favorite you know war comics ever. I, I, I'm so in love with this stuff. But they're that the the battle plans for taking down the balloons is sort of like crazy haphazard. Like I imagine reading up on these things, it sounds very complicated because again, there's there's ground cover, there's planes flying around, the the observation balloons are up there, there's barrage balloons around it, there's traps, there's guys with machine guns, all this stuff. It's very you know very well defended. Yet in the comics, it's just like Steve's flying around. He's like, eh, I'm going to go take out a couple balloons. What the hell? And it's like on a whim. He just goes off and shoots off a bunch of balloons. I got to imagine it's probably the missions were probably have to be planned a little more meticulously than him just going, eh, it's Tuesday. I'll go take out some balloons. But uh, that's just me. <laughs> and then uh, I do love, and I talked about this already earlier, is, is they make a real point and they repeat it throughout every story that he is not a fancy flyer. He has not got the skill to zoom and loop and do all this stuff. No, he just points his plane and just does doesn't stop shooting until the enemy's dead. And I still love that, that, like, that this determination, just this pure will of killing the enemy just always wins out. I, I adore that. It is very sad, though, that someone always ends up dying. I mean, yeah. It, 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 now, that didn't happen in every story. Like, I don't think it happened in the enemy ace when you covered with Frank Thorne. But all the earlier appearances, you know, it's whether it's uh, the, the girl, the mademoiselle's brother dies or, uh, you know, his wingman dies. Someone always dies in those early stories, which is very depressing because you're thinking, God, he, you know, him disobeying orders does keep resulting in allies dying. <laughs> 
hey, balloon busting is, it's not, you know, it's a risky endeavor, even if you're not the balloon bust. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Well, folks, if you want to get your hands on some of these, uh, Rob mentioned, you know, of course, eBay is an option. Uh, I don't think any of them are available digitally on like Comixology or anything, but you can, you can get the, uh, the Enemy Ace, uh, showcase edition to get some of them. Uh, and, and we'll talk about a, a few more that are in there too. Cause the, where, where do these appearances go? So we mentioned, um, his original four appearances, then, uh, the one by Rick Estrada. Then we talked about your enemy ace by Frank Thorne. Then he goes to Unknown Soldier, and he battles the enemy ace again. Uh, and again, this jumped forward eight years. So from 1974, which is your Frank Thorne issues, you jump forward eight years to 1982, where he's in Unknown Soldier, and he fights uh, enemy ace, and those are drawn by Dan Spiegel. And it's interesting, in those issues, uh, enemy ace and uh, Balloon Buster actually team up. They, there's a, uh, they meet, uh, Balloon Buster befriends this uh, small boy, he's a French uh, young man, who's, uh, who's blind. And they find out there's a way to uh, cure his sight, but it would require him to go to Berlin for surgery. Well, he can't do that. It's behind enemy lines. So Balloon Buster and enemy actually work together. They actually conspire. I mean, it's basically treason. They conspire to, to sneak this kid into Germany to get help, and they work together. Um, it's a great story. Dan Spiegel's art's amazing. But it almost sort of ignores the Frank Thorne story. It's almost like they're meeting for the first time. Do you notice that? Uh, yeah, when you say it now, yeah. I, I guess you could say that they do seem to act like they don't really know each other. Yeah. Now, this next story is even more critical for that. So after that story, the, another, the next three issues, he fights enemies again. And that one's drawn by John Severin, which is absolutely stunning. And this one is a lot more like the Frank Thorne issues. It is a straight, lots of battles, lots of fighting. Uh, it's Savage and enemies dueling in the air. They're on dueling on the ground with pistols. It actually ends, uh, a lot of it, by the way, is each of them helping maintain each other's honor. Like they're each trying to help each other keep their honor. And in the end, uh, Enemy Ace actually shoots Balloon Buster, and as he flies off, you're not sure if he's going to make it back to his base or not. So Enemy Ace may have killed Balloon Buster, and they leave it a little ambiguous. But that one definitely is like a retcon of the Frank Thorne stories, because it's actually reversed. Enemy Ace gets captured, and they actually have a, a little banquet for him, where they, right? they yeah. it's, it's the exact opposite. So it, it totally ignores the previous one. But, you know, who cares? It's just damn good comics. Yeah, they're, they're again, they're all marvelous. I was curious as to why they decided to dust off Balloon Buster and put him in the back of Unknown Soldier for six issues and uh, then then not again. You know, I always wonder how they sort of decide those things. It's got to be Kaniger. I mean, being that he wrote both the, the Enemy Ace feature and Balloon Buster, I, I imagine he's just like, ah, well, I haven't played with that for a while. I, I yeah, maybe I, so. Yeah. So, uh, so he, from there, you know, he disappears after 82-ish, and then he shows up in Who's Who. Uh, and he shows up in Crisis on Infinite Earth number nine, doesn't he? Yeah, he and he gets a pretty big part. I mean, for a character who's clearly just cameoing, he gets half a page in issue number nine to himself. We see his plane. He gets to refer to himself as Balloon Buster. Like, there are lots of characters that came and went in Crisis, like Sugar and Spike appear in the background in one panel. But uh, Marv Wolfman or George Perez or somebody must have really liked Balloon Buster because the story sort of stops for a moment for Balloon Buster to have a little bit of a monologue. It's nice. And it's drawn by George Perez, so it's gorgeous. Just, uh, yep. looks great. And then, uh, then he, sh- then he has a little bit in history of the DC universe where they just kind of doing, they mentioned all these people that fought in the war. So you see a, a split second of him there as well. But then, okay, so that's 1986 ish, right? Then he's gone again, just vanishes. But then in 1997, James Robinson dusted off Balloon Buster and had some fun with him. First, uh, in the Starman annual. Now, I don't know if you remember the annuals from 1997. Rob doesn't because he gave up on comic books, but, uh, in 1997, DC did a series of what they call pulp heroes 
annuals. And in all these annuals, it was designed to look like an old pulp story. And they usually had some sort of connective tissue to the pulps. In the Starman annual, uh, and it came out in 97, it, 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 again, by James Robinson, it, they tell the story of the scalp hunter. You know, the famous uh, scalp hunter character who, who was during the cowboy era and looked like a Native American, dressed like a Native American, uh, and his name was Brian Savage. And uh, it tells the story of scalp hunter. And in that story, they reveal that Brian Savage, scalp hunter, is actually the father of Steve Savage. The Balloon Buster, which goes completely against Balloon Buster's origin that we know, where he's the son of his, you know, this quote-unquote white trash, you know, nobody. But here they say, no, he's actually the son of Brian Savage, but was raised, uh, you know, they basically say there's all these myths around him. And so what you heard was wrong kind of story. Uh, And and they don't really dwell on it because that story is really a scalp hunter story. But then the same month, it looks like, the Batman Legends of the Dark – this is the one you want to pay attention to, folks. Batman Legends of the Dark Knight Annual number 7. Go find this thing. Uh, Again, it's Pulp Heroes Annual, written by James Robinson, and uh, it tells two stories. It tells a story in modern day where Batman is investigating this uh, air air show company because uh, there's some shenanigans going on in a murder. And meanwhile, they tell a parallel parallel story that takes place during World War I, all about Balloon Buster, and is drawn by Russ Heath. They got Russ Heath back in 1997 to draw Balloon Buster, and it is a great story. Again, they address the whole fact that his dad is scalp hunter, and, and he ends up, it's the end of the war. It's actually the very end of the war, and he falls in love with this woman, is a love of his life who he wants to marry, and uh, it all goes horribly wrong. And then you find out he comes back to the States, and, and where, where Batman comes in is Batman's in modern day investigating this murder that all is tied to the quote-unquote treasure that Steve Savage brought back from Europe. And it's a really enjoyable story. It's a fast read, even though it's like 50-some pages, but James Robinson wrote it very, you know, it, it, it makes for a fast read, and again, Russ Heath art, and uh, it's, it's really, really enjoyable. I liked it a lot. I did not ex- I did not even remember it, and I read it back then. Yeah, that's amazing that there was an entire issue, an entire annual devoted to Balloon Buster in a Batman comic, no less. Yeah. So, uh, but before before you, before we get off Pulp Heroes, though, since you felt the need to make that snide comment about uh, my comic book reading history, <laughs> uh, I do feel the need to point out that the if you look it up, everybody, if you look at the cover for Batman Annual Number Twenty One, which is the Pulp Heroes uh, installment of annual, the Batman Annual Annual Number Seven. The, yeah. No. 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 This is Batman Annual Number Twenty One. Oh, Batman. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, not yeah, not Dark Knight. Batman. Batman Annual number 21 from 1997, The Pulp Heroes. If you look it up, you will see it is festooned with a beautiful painted cover of Batman uh, fighting a woman. And it says a uh, suspense detective. And it looks like he's in Chinatown. You can see like this big sort of paper dragon behind him. That is painted by a wonderful artist named Joel Napperstack. Joel Napperstack was my instructor oh. in the year of Kubert. And we, our class, we were very close with Joel. He invited us to his house for a graduation party after we after we graduated. We are directly responsible for him doing this cover. Because, yes, because we he had done all uh, commercial illustration. He never thought he had anything really to do with comic books. And we said, Joel, we really think you could do some great painted covers. So he started looking into getting some work at DC and that ended up with this cover. Oh my gosh. That is so cool. Us. There you go. Look yep. at you. Yep. You, did, yep. you did something good for somebody. Huh. There we go. <laughs> that's, that's one. That's one person on earth. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Rob, uh, as we come to the end of this segment of Who's That, we ask every time, uh, as we, you know, we, we, the, the Who's Who entry piqued our interest, we've read a little bit more on the character. So, uh, we've explored it. Was it worth it? Was, did the Who's Who entry do its job and lead us to more interesting stories, or did it lead us down a eh kind of way? Oh, no, completely. I'd say this is probably, of all the Who's Hat, Who's That's we've done, this is the number one. This is, the, in terms of every story that I read, I really enjoyed. And, well, I would be happy to read more Balloon Buster comics. I wish there were more older ones for me to dig up because the ones I read are just really great. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was an absolute win, guys. This was so stinking good. I, uh, I mean, we, we've done Crime Doctor. We've done Dr. Cult. We've done Ultra. Oh, you can say that one. Ultra, the multi-alien. <laughs> we've done Johnny Thunder, uh, the Western character. Those were really good, too, by the way. Those were really good, too. Maybe I was a little... Okay. The Johnny Thunder was really good, as was Ultra, but th- this was... Boom Buster was really good. Yeah, I mean, this this is probably my favorite, though. I mean, I genuinely now consider myself... Uh, I'm not an expert on Balloon Buster, but I consider myself a pretty big fan. I've read every freaking appearance by him now, and I freaking love it. So uh, I, I told Rob that I, I plan to cosplay um, a Balloon Buster at, at his wedding, by the way. So <laughs> watch, watch for that, folks. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, that is going to do it on this part of the segment. We're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we are going to cover your feedback from the last Who's That, where we talked about Dr. Occult. You're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast. You heard right, partners. The vigilante rides again. From across the western plains and into the streamlined east flashes a mystery rider, symbolic of the spirit of frontier America, the vigilante, heroic champion of law and order who battles 20th century criminals with weapons of the range in a ceaseless one-man stampede against all lawlessness. Follow the victory trail of the prairie troubadour, Greg Saunders, and his alter ego, the vigilante, as he rounds up public enemy number one with smoking six-guns and twirling lariat. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, prairie justice, the Greg Saunders vigilante podcast, climbs into the saddle on Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Dr. Fate. Dr. Midnight. Starman. Johnny Quick. Wildcat. Power Girl. The All-Star Squadron. The Firebrand. Amazing Man. Huntress. Cyclone. Sandman. Mr. Terrific. Star Commander Girl. Steel. Power Seven Man. Soldiers of Liberty. Liberty Infinity Incorporated. Those are just some of the celebrated and beloved heroes associated with Earth 2 and the Justice Society of America. These daring mystery men and women banded together in 1940 to form the first super team in comics. They inspired a decades-long legacy of heroes who would follow in their footsteps, and now they've inspired us to launch a new podcast. Justice Society presents a new anthology on the Fire and Water Podcast Network featuring a variety of theme shows with different hosts celebrating some of their favorite comics and characters associated with the golden age of comics, Earth 2, the JSA, and beyond. We'll launch this new series with an ongoing show called Justice Society Presents Crisis, in which Rob and Shag go through each of the classic team-ups between the Justice League and the Justice Society. Then joining the podcast feed will be the Starman Chronicles. Chris and Cindy continue their coverage of James Robinson's epic series from beginning to end. 
Later in the year, Ryan Daly and Max Romero will tackle the Vertigo title, Sandman Mystery Theater. And two years later, Ryan will cancel it. That's probably. Then in the coming months and years, we'll be adding further ongoing shows and one-off specials celebrating other beloved characters in comics related to the JSA of any era, from the 1940s to today. Join the fight for justice and subscribe to Justice Society Presents on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. We are back for Who's Who, How's and Why's, and we are going to talk about Dr. Occult from Who's That. All right, Rob. Uh, now, I should say, just as a reminder, we are just pulling comments from our website and emails we receive. We, we don't do the social media on the Who's That's. If you want to be listed in the next Who's That uh, feedback section, which you can, leave your comments on our website. What's that website, Rob? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. I want to talk about all of y'all and why you are the gun. So uh, leave your comments there. Okay. So, uh, yeah, first up, is a comment from Chris Lewis from the Storium Arc podcast. He says, great discussion, gentlemen. Dr. Cult is one of those characters that I have a strange, irrational attraction to, although not quite as much as my strange, irrational love for Ultra the Multi-Alien. Go ahead, Rob. Say it one more time with feeling. Ultra the Multi-Alien. And this, uh, is, guess... and this is how you get your comment right on the air, people. Exactly. Well, Chris is, Chris is uh, you know what, we'll talk about Chris in a sec. Okay. I, guess it was, uh, I guess it was the Siegel and Schuster heritage and long publication history that made DC want to include Dr. Cult in the pre-crisis All-Star Squadron and merited that first two-suit entry. Does the character have legs? I'd say yes. One, from the stories that are out there, the whole ghost detective angle feels like it has yet to be fully explored. And to recycle the line from my previous Susu comment, is there a cooler job description to have on your business card than ghost detective? <laughs> perhaps, perhaps matching up Dr. Cult with Dead Man would make for an interesting team-up miniseries. Two, the trench coat fedora costume is an iconic and vintage look that could contrast with a very modern take on the gender fluidity that can be seen in some depictions of the character. But the right artist, the Rose Incarnation, could sport some amazing 30s, 40s fashions to make the Dr. Cole character super stylish in the male and female versions. The theme of identity could continue to be a powerful subject running through the tales of the good doctor. Even if you were surprised with the outcome of the vote, I'm really glad that Dr. Occult won out. Covering a non-binary character in Pride Month feels completely appropriate. Thanks for an enjoyable show. Well, thank you, Chris. By the way, I should say, uh, you know, Chris mentions the podcast that he hosts. He will be appearing on this very network in a future episode of MASHcast. So uh, listen for that. He was a wonderful guest to talk to. And he'll be on JLI podcast as well, by the way. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah, I know. I, I keep these things fairly quiet. I don't I don't talk about it until they're recorded. So <laughs> normally. So, I, you know, everything he described really does make Dr. Occult sound interesting. Uh, where I where I hit my wall, though, was all those cool things he described did didn't end up in the comics we read necessarily. <laughs> right. So I love Chris's idea if they could uh, produce those comics. I would have been totally on board. So Then we heard from Tom Zoller, who is a professional comic book artist and writer. You might know him from things like Loving Capes, Cupid's Arrow, or as Rob's old roommate, quite actually. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's famous for that. Exactly. So it's on his business card. It's got all those things and Rob Kelly's former roommate. Anyway, <laughs> Tom wrote in to say um, – I used to do caricatures of people as superheroes at conventions, and in the 1990s, some 12-year-old kid asked to be drawn as Dr. Occult. I laughed and said, I know him, trench coat, spinning disc. And the kid said, yeah, I want to be drawn in the superhero costume he wore for one issue in 1937. <laughs> totally schooled, but I'm glad to see new readers doing the crazy deep dive. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. That was a super deep dive. And if that's the 1990s, I mean, that kid could have grown up to be, I don't know, like Derek 
crab or somebody. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> that is really cool. Thank you for sharing that, Tom. If it was Derek William Crab, it would have been a caricature of Maxima. We all <laughs> That's true. That's true. So, uh, so anyway, so uh, Matt Sorois uh, says, great episode, guys. Rob, it's totally understandable why you confuse Dr. Occult. I'm always mistaking him for Dr. 13. Or am I always mistaking Dr. 13 for Dr. Occult? Anyways, DC could have easily revived this character during the Bronze Age. He could have guest starred in Adventure Comics when Spectre took over the title or popped up in The Phantom Stranger. They also could have given him a recurring feature in Ghosts or House of Mystery or another of their many horror titles from the era. Absolutely, Matt. Yeah, they, the DC had lots of room for Dr. Occult to, to appear here and there, and they, they they never really got around to doing it. And then uh, Mike Dynas follows up with, oh man, that's what I've been, uh, that, that is what I've been doing as well, mixing up Dr. Occult and Dr. 13. No wonder I couldn't find stories that I thought I remember Dr. Occult was in. So here's a little inside baseball for you guys. When we do these shows, uh, we lay out all the feedback, and Rob highlights his parts, which is like three people, and then I have to read everybody else's. And I don't read the parts that Rob highlights till we get to on the air. And so I had not read this comment until this one. I probably read it when the issue episode came out. But anyway, I'm reading it now. I also realized I've been mixing up Dr. Occult and Dr. 13. <laughs> I was going to mention – I fully planned on mentioning in a little while Dr. Occult's daughter, Tracy 13, who was a superhero. And now I realize, oh, crap, that's Dr. 13's daughter. <laughs> so uh, Matt and Mike, you're, you're in good company. I also was confused. So I'm glad you guys clarified that for me. And so I didn't have I to share it. I'm glad you, I didn't have to share it on the air and embarrass myself. I remember Dr. Colt being such a dick. Oh, wait, no, that's Dr. 13. All right. Okay. No, <laughs> All right. Then we hear from Chris Franklin from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does many shows, including things like Batman Nightcast, Superman Movie Minute, and many more. Chris writes in to say, Dr. Occult showed up a few times in the Superman books in the 1990s as well. I like that the super team at the time were pulling him into the family as their de facto magic guy. It certainly made a lot of sense given their shared heritage. Now, as I read that, I think Chris is also mixing up Dr. 13 and Tracy, because that's Tracy 13 was in the Superman comics for a while. <laughs> so I, I don't know if Chris is mixing up, but I, that's why I was mistaking it. Anyway, Chris goes on to say, I always thought that the character had a lot of untapped potential just because he has a cool visual. I could see them bringing him in on the CW Stargirl series as their Phantom Stranger type character. That's actually a great idea, Chris. That would work really, really well. We're from Mike Dynas again. It was great to see those original bonker stories. Those early newspaper strips seem like more stream of consciousness than well-plotted out stories, at least by modern comparisons. It's amazing to see where the format started and how far it's come in certain aspects. Uh, you're not wrong, man. Those early stories were completely stream of consciousness. They were bonkers. Anyway, uh, Mike goes on to say, I think Dr. Occult appeared in the miniseries Mystic You a couple years ago. Though he, she, wasn't the star of the story, it did kind of play up the duality of the character between the Doc and Rose and how they have different personalities, but ultimately act together towards the same goal. Hmm, that's pretty cool. I, I'm not familiar with Mystic You. I've never even heard of that. I don't know what that was at all. Uh, Nicholas Prom from the Comic Reflections podcast asked, for the love of Vishnu, can the next one of these be about Brother Power the Geek? Uh, <laughs> sorry, Nicholas. I'm not saying we won't get to that at some point, but but sorry that uh, not this time around. <laughs> then we hear from Robert Markham. It says, you might consider episodes on the characters listed in both Who's Who and Ohatmu, such as Ares, Hercules, or Spawn of Frankenstein. Captain Entropy chimed in and say, only if the Ohatmu girls appear and discuss the characters' ratings. And then Siskoid, of course, from the network, uh, who does Ohatmu or not, and Zero Hour Strikes and a lot more, he writes in and goes, an odd theme, considering Ares is a pretty big deal in the DCU, but who here has read Hercules Unbound? Maybe more than I think. Oh, believe me, Dr. Ange's hand is so far up, raising his hand My going, oh, 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 me, me, me. Mine is too. I've read that series. Yeah. So that, I, you know, I, I again, not making any promises for the future, but that might be fun to do something where it crosses over a Marvel-type uh, parallel and with the Ohatma girls, that'd, that'd be a blast. 
Mm-hmm. Then we heard from Tom Perrin, and I apologize if I'm saying your name wrong, Tom. He says, uh, Dr. Occult appears with Zatara in the three-point story in Golden Age Seeker Files and Origins. Also in a couple places in Day of Judgment, Seeker Files and Origins. Man, you know, Tom, I love those Seeker Files and Origins. I thought those things were freaking phenomenal. I miss those things. Those were really, really enjoyable. Thanks for uh, jogging that memory. Are we sure that's not Dr. 13? <laughs> Could have been. Could have been. No. Tom, check back in with us later. Uh, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog comic books commentary and the legion super blogger says great episode dr cult seemed like an unnecessary insertion into the crisis given that we just remet him in all-star squadron with the specter duking out with the anti-monitor the magic casters are focusing energy through dr cult symbol what that came so out of the blue it pulled me out of the story a little and then the oddest part of this episode i'll paraphrase quote for people looking for something good to read they should seek out rain and hell unquote words no one has ever said before <laughs> ever <laughs> <laughs> anyway, hoping the Starfire episode app. Uh, I I liked Henry in Hell, but it, it, it's especially good for the parts with Doctor Occult. So anyway, because he hangs out with the Dibneys, man, the Dibneys. <laughs> so okay, Ado Boznar says I'm with Ange. I would love a Starfire episode. We will get to that eventually, guys. Uh, I used to have the entire series. I remember liking it for the most part, mind you. That was back when I was about 13, 14 years old. So yeah, I'll accept your thesis that democracy doesn't work if Doctor Occult wins when Starfire is among the choices. Unless you guys have some kind of electoral college thing going. Uh, if, if, Dr- if, only, if only we had known how the election was going to go when we did when we made those jokes. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, totally. Uh, as for Dr. Occult, even after listening to your show, I'm not really convinced he's all that great a character. Seems like there's lots of DC characters that cover the same or similar ground, like the aforementioned Dr. 13. As far as I'm concerned, he's no ultra the multi-alien. Oh like God. Chris, I want to give Rob as many opportunities as possible to say his name or even ultra for that matter <laughs> these people are such kiss-ups oh my we're gonna read your comments anyway guys you don't have to do this <laughs> somebody please mention laura gemser at some point on oh that, please we, we've gotten away from that for a few months can we not all right anyway then we're from liz ann oswald who's got her own youtube channel liz says uh can't wait till y'all do one on starfire i have all the 70s issues uh, that i got after seeing her who's who issue look at that third vote in a row for starfire i'm just saying mm. it needs to happen <laughs> all right then we hear from Symbol Pending, who has uh, the, the Power Girl Symbol Pending blog. Symbol Pending writes, For this podcast, I did a deep dive into the dark web and read all of the old Doctor Occult issues, and I was sorely disappointed that there wasn't more Rose in them. Yes, I'm a fan of her, can you tell? Like many, I came from the Books of Magic version of the character, so I may be biased. That's totally understandable. Okay. Uh, Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman, and the Outsiders podcast says, If only DC had gotten into the pog craze, they could have launched Dr. Occult to New Glory. That's not a pog. This is a pog. Sorry, I must have pog and... Oh my gosh. Sadly, uh, Tim, DC did get in on the pog craze, and I actually have a set of the DC pogs, and I even bought, like, the top loaders, like the little plastic sheets. They made them specifically for pogs. I have the DC ones. Not that it's worth writing home about. You they remember just... Dr. Occult? Well, it's back. <laughs> Hog form. Whoa. All right. They're from Diablo Frank from the Roll Spine Podcast Network. He does uh, shows like Martin uh, Martian Manhunter, the idol head of Diablo. He does a blog and a podcast on that, and many, many more. He writes about Who's Who, volume number six, which is where Dr. Occult appeared, is the only issue I ever bought new. And while its goofiness frankly contributed to my rejecting the greater DC universe until the 90s, it's also a comic I grazed hundreds of times over years of ownership. I also generally not a big Ed uh, Barreto fan. fan 
But he's so great at this period feel, I wish that he was still around to do a Doctor Occult book. I guess the closest we'll ever get is a Mickey Spillane's Mike Danger, the best of the techno comics I read. And then he says, faint praise, admittedly. <laughs> That's true about uh, techno comics. Then uh, Frank goes on to say, there's something I find really appealing about essentially a Dick Tracy type, but against the supernatural. There's just a thing about a grounded mortal hero type being juxtaposed against the bizarre, and yet I never fully uh, encountered the exact thing. Carl Kolshak was too much of a rumpled everyman, and horror movies are filled with regular guys. Blade and the rest of the Tomb of the Dracula crew were just too much in the Hammer tradition, Inquisitors and Researchers and Slayers, common uh, types dating back to Stoker. Stoker. And give me the meat and potatoes straight shooter who just happens to coat his bullets in silver. A person who has to chase down leads and really investigate what the threat is and how to resolve it with limited resources. Not entirely dissimilar to the 1997 Dragnet movie, actually. Joe Friday's criminal investigation stumbles upon on a pagan cult engaged in ritualistic human sacrifice, but he's so matter-of-fact about it, it's just another element of the case. Well, I found all that fascinating because you make a good point. Just this hard you know, gumshoe kind of guy tracking somebody down is sort of an interesting aspect and, and we don't see that a lot. But then I just had to go for the full Dragnet reference because I'm like, what? Seriously? Who really references the 87 Dragnet except for Frank? I'm just telling you. Captain Entropy adds, I always feel weird saying this, but I agree with Frank. Regular Joe, tough guy, against the weird and supernatural is appearing, especially uh, appealing, especially with that look. I think that's part of the appeal of Indiana Jones and even Ace Kilroy. Of course, I never knew Whoa. till now. Yeah, there's a deep cut. Of course, I never knew till now that Lucas and Spielberg stole the ending of Raiders from the first Doctor Occult adventure. You know, where the hero die, uh, does nothing while the villain is defeated by consequences of his own actions. <laughs> you know, I wonder the, like the, and I'm speaking out of school because I didn't watch the show. My wife did, though. But I wonder if the first season of Supernatural kind of falls in that realm where they were just kind of regular guys who were going around killing uh, Supernatural stuff. I don't know. And I don't want to have a huge conversation about Supernatural. But I'm just throwing that out there. Then Doug Van Diver wrote in. He says, regarding Mrs. Amster, which was the damsel now, uh, those stories, some books about Siegel and Schuster have asserted that Jerry Siegel admired a girl in school named Lois Amster. Reports have not yet surfaced on whether school-aged Jerry also took note of any girls, perhaps seated in the same row of desks that Lois was in, with names like Lana, Lori, Lucy, Lena, Lara. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog says, I'm chuffed a bit, uh, or I'm chuffed to bit that Dr. Occult won the vote. They're most, uh, they're the most unusual of the choices, and it led to some great chat. Uh, that Roy Thomas secret origin, I'm amazed he didn't tie the kidnap of Ross and Richard in with the origin of Johnny Thunder. The overlap of concepts is definitely there. So after Who's Who and Siskoid's Who's Editing, another show, Who's Missing? Thanks, Zoom. Look at the characters that are really, really obscure, such as Dr. Pat or Johnny Law or Lady Danger, who didn't actually get an entry in Who's Who. Uh, well, you know, we've had a gentleman, uh, who goes by Jeff R., who's been writing into every, well, not not the the uh, loose leaf editions, but all the previous era of Who's Who. He would write in the egregious omission of the month, and he would share with us characters that had been missed. So we, we have discussed a lot of that on the show, and he, he did promise me one at the end of the uh, loose leaf edition, so we'll, I look forward to that. So Terrence Stewart, who does the B-Boys Killer Sting blog followed up Martin's comment because uh, Martin had mentioned a bunch of people and he included Dr. Pat and I'm like I don't know who Dr. Pat is like is that um, is that you know like Pat from Saturday Night Live I don't know what that is anyway Terrence Stewart wrote Dr. Pat please apart from those excellent reprints in the Bronze Age Lois Lane of Wonder Woman I've never been able to find out anything about her but then I haven't delved into the dark net so I had to google her apparently her name is Patricia Windsor and she was a doctor in like Sensation Comics from the 40s I've never even heard of Dr. Pat <laughs> So you guys, uh, nice deep cuts. I love it, but we're not going to be doing Dr. Pat on who's that. I'm not, I'm just, 
All right, so that is going to do it, folks, for this episode of Who's That? Please go out to our website, firewaterpodcast.com. Leave your comments there on this post because we want to hear from you all about the Balloon Buster. We want to cover it next time. And uh, also you can find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, as under Firewater Podcast Network. So, Rob, next episode of Who's That? Are we going to reveal it here or are we going to let people uh, wait with bated breath? Well, let's let them wait. I mean, we are certainly going to leave it up to them. No. Because when, they... when we left it up to them, we got Dr. Occult. When we do it, we get ultra and Johnny Thunder and Balloon Buster. So we are going to be steering this ship from now on. <laughs> you know why? Because I am the gun. That's why we're steering no, That's right. Exactly. All right, folks. So you can go out to that website and you can see a gallery post. We have lots of Balloon Buster images for you to check out. And they are stinking gorgeous. So until next month, who's, who's next? next? 